So our theme verse of this uh, series we're calling Unashamed is from uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul, who was sitting in prison, said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So just to go back and review a little bit, because last week and this week are kind of like the twin sisters of the family. But last week, we looked at where Jesus said what is called the Great Commandment, go, or Great Commission, go make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations. In other words, you have to talk. You can't just be a nice person. You can't just be a good neighbor. You have to actually use your words. And uh, we found, we ground ourselves in God's word, that we believe that the Bible is God's inspired word for our, it's our final authority for faith and practice. The scripture is breathed out by God. <clears throat> it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And and so Jesus said, go make disciples. The world needs to know the message of Christ, but they aren't looking to us for it. So we need to take it to them. And that's where Jesus said, as our, his example, basically, go be a missionary of one. Take somebody with you if you can, but if you need to, stand all by yourself. And to think of ourselves not just as good people, not just as uh, Christians, not just as church members, but really as missionaries to our part of the world. We're not just part of a Christian club. We are uh, part of <clears throat> sharing the good news of Jesus. And remember, we referenced a little book by a guy named Elliot Clark, a book called Ex uh, Evangelism as Exiles. And I'll give you a, the quote again. He said, day and age where most Americans are nominal Christians is thinning out. Decidedly non-Christian and anti-Christian agendas riding the digital waves increasingly prevail. So here you have Jesus saying, go make disciples. You wonder what holds us back. Is it fear? Is it embarrassment? What is it? Because Jesus said, we need to have fear. In fact, when the disciples talked about this, he said, don't fear those who can kill your body and can't kill your soul. Fear the one who can both destroy your soul and your body in hell. So Jesus is saying, we need to have a healthy respect for what God is telling us to do. So this is the great commission. Go make disciples that you need to talk and speak up and uh, be courageous. This week, I'm looking at the other, the great co commandment where Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and with your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. He said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the key idea here is that we need to live out <clears throat> to fulfill Jesus' commands, go make disciples and love God and love your neighbor. We, we need to live those in such a compelling and a winning way to the world around us that they see what we've got and they want to have Jesus themselves. So you got to talk. You can't just stay silent. And today we're saying it's not what you say, but how you say it. How you say it. And so number one is base your advice in the gospel to talk about the things of Christ from the gospel. Colossians 4, Paul said, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And we end up thinking, ah, if I do too much of that, I'll get labeled, I'll, I'll get put in a little box, I might even get teased or, or uh, uh, harassed in some way. Well, think about this. God has created you. Jesus has already died for you on the cross and offered you salvation. And you will someday be exalted to a home in heaven if you give your life to Jesus. So between the, here's what God has done and what will happen, between those two, there's this little period of undetermined length of time of living as an exile in the world. 
So sometimes as exiles, we're left out, misunderstood, we're tested, we're challenged, we're ridiculed, we're made to feel foolish, made to feel shame, we're pressed to capitulate to the pressures of the world or even treated harshly, or some people have been martyred for their faith. It isn't kind, it isn't fair, it isn't right, and it doesn't last forever. It's a test. Earlier this month, a guy named Bob Maxwell died in Bend, Oregon. He, uh, before his death, was the oldest Medal of Honor recipient who's still alive, longest, longest, the oldest, and uh, had the medal the longest. He was 24 years old when he, as an American soldier, was in France fighting against Germany for freedom. He's in a fight. And on a particular day, in an instant of time, he saw a problem and he grabbed a blanket and he smothered a German hand grenade before it detonated and uh, killed many of his fellow soldiers. The decision he made while in hostile environment defined who he was and who he was the entire rest of his life. It wasn't really his fight. And it wasn't fair that he had to fight it and it was brutal and he was wounded and he could have died. But how he responded in those few critical moments defined him and defined the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, everywhere, he was recognized as a Medal of Honor recipient for the heroism that he uh, demonstrated during World War II. So we live in this little moment, and we're headed to heaven. And in heaven, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about all the ways that we were given opportunities to speak for Christ, to, to represent Christ, to be ridiculed for Christ, to suffer for Christ while we were in this life. It's just a moment, and it's a fight. And Jesus fought the fight that won the decisive battle, but we too still get pulled into some of the skirmishes. So we're armed with God's Word. It's our guide for our faith and practice. In fact, in Ephesians 6, Paul got talking about some of this, starting verse 10. He said this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So stand, therefore. That's about the fourth time we've heard that, isn't it? The difficulty of just standing, even if you're standing alone for Jesus Christ. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You can see all this talk about prayer. If you've looked ahead in the outline, you know next week we're talking about prayer. You're going to want to be here. It'll be good. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here we are armed with God's word, getting ready for a fight. But even in the fight, there are rules of engagement. You don't just obliterate everything and everyone in your path. <laughs> and within the Word of God, Jesus told us how to approach this as believers. In John 13, he said, A new commandment I give you. He gave this at the Last Supper. 
It was the last night he was with the disciples. It was the last time they probably were all going to be together, except for the grace of God. And Jesus said to them, A new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By all this, people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So over and over and over, he says, love one another, love one another. It's not to your buildings. It's not even your theology. It's not the songs that you choose to sing. It's how you treat one another. People will know that you're mine. So you might say, well, he's just talking about believer to believer there. But no, Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. That's right before the verse that says, let your speech be see, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. Do you know, about six times a year, we offer uh, something in somebody's home called the, the pastor's dessert. Basically, the pastor's there, a dessert is there, and it's a lot more fun if you show up. And uh, just to have conversation and to talk about things that matter and <clears throat> talk about our church. So uh, several years ago, then we were doing this in a home. Everybody was settled in. Everybody had gotten to introduce themselves, gotten something to eat. Every, the, the mood was good. And we were talking back and forth, and people are asking questions. And somebody asked a question about homosexuality. Well, we believe that the Bible is our authority, and we're, the Bible is clear on this topic. And for 2,000 years, the Christian church has, based on the authority of God's Word, has held this same position, that homosexual behavior is incompatible with Christian teaching. And so sometimes when we try to explain this, we as Christians sound defensive or angry or short on compassion. And on that particular evening, this one young family who asked the question um, <clears throat> afterwards didn't seem very friendly to me. And they said to one of our other pastors as they left, we, we won't be back. Your pastor is too harsh and judgmental. So... I was grieved by that because Jesus is our model and Jesus is full of grace and truth and how to speak it in a way that people can receive. Well, one of uh, the members here at South Shores is Sean McDowell, and he is a professor of Bible at two places, here at the school right here and also at Biola. And um, I have heard him speak on this topic, that yes, we need to maintain the truth, and yes, we need to be people who are full of compassion and uh, full of grace. And so he's actually had situations where he was asked to speak on CNN to give a Christian perspective about this. And uh, when they asked him in advance what his thoughts were, and he told them that he would treat people with respect and with graciousness and be kind and tell the truth, the producer said, oh, I can't have you on my show. The director is looking for somebody much more combative than that. So that's part of the world we live in. And we are called to minister in the name of Christ. And the assumption by the world and the way that Christians are portrayed is that they're angry, they're haters, they're defensive, they, they don't want to be all-inclusive to people. And it's true that we're in a fight, and we need to come ready to the fight, armed with the truth. And Jesus said we, he wants his people to get known and to become famous for how we love it's not an instrument of fighting that most people understand. And to fight like Christ did, it's a tall order to be unashamed but not obnoxious, to be full of grace and full of truth. And sometimes when you're a fight like that, you realize, <clears throat> do you know, the rest, uh, I'm the only one because everybody else has, has uh, forsaken to go some other way. And I'm standing, but I'm standing all alone. And so I want to give you several examples from that of Scripture because so there are people like that in the Bible. 
um, who, people who had to stand all alone for their faith and for their uh, dedication to following God's way. The first one is actually in the first book of the Bible named Genesis, and his name is Joseph. It takes up about a third of the book. He was from a large uh, dysfunctional family, really, but God's hand was on his life, and he so irritated his older brothers. His dad had ended up having four wives and had uh, 12 sons, and Joseph was number 11. So he had 10 older brothers, and he managed to irritate them enough that when they had a chance, they actually sold him into slavery. And then when they got home from tending their flocks of sheep, they told their dad, look, we found his robe covered in blood. He must have uh, died by an animal's hand. Joseph was 17 at the time, but he grew up pretty quick then. He became the slave of the chief of police when they got to Egypt, and he worked diligently and uh, was rising in the ranks, but then lies were told about him, and uh, he landed him, found himself put into prison. So it's not fair because he had been doing the right thing, but God was with him there, probably was in prison more than 10 years for doing what was right. It became known that Joseph had the power from God to interpret dreams, and one day Pharaoh himself needed some dreams interpreted. And Joseph was snatched from prison. He explained the dreams uh, to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh promoted him uh, to number two most powerful person in the world. He went on one day from being a prisoner, and uh, by the next night he was promoted to the palace to be the international director of Feed the Need worldwide. <laughs> and... <clears throat> He managed to keep the world from starving, and in the process of that, his own brothers and ended up their father as well all came to Egypt to live, and he was reunited with them, and he took care of them. But when their dad died, the brothers got really scared, thinking, oh, now that dad's gone, Joseph is going to take his revenge because we treated him so poorly. And that's not how God's man Joseph thought. Look how Joseph responded. It's in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. It said, Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I, am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph was in a position of power, but he didn't abuse the power. Instead of looking around and saying, boy, I could accomplish this and this and this and to get even, he kept his eyes on God, the ultimate power. And when the situation needed it, uh, Joseph told the truth, even when it was painful. But when he could, he was responding with grace and compassion. Next point I want us to see is to be humble. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that he will stand. There's another man who was all alone. And, well, actually, he was worse than all alone because if you had family and friends like he did, you wouldn't need enemies. You know, his name is Job. Looks like Job. But uh, Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What a great epitaph that would be, that you were blameless, you were upright, you feared God, and you turned away from evil. So he had this large, fun-filled family that loved to party, and he's extremely wealthy, and the best part really was God was pleased with him. God was so pleased with him that when all of the beings in the heavens got together for some kind of conference, God bragged to the devil, said, have you noticed that, that guy Job, how much he loves me? And the devil said back to him, well, it's only because you bless him over and over. You take away the blessings and he'd stop loving you. 
And God said, no, that's not the truth. You can test him if you want. You will find that that's not the case. You know, there's some things that are going on between God and the devil, between good and evil, between heaven and earth, that we know absolutely nothing about. It might impact our life in a great way, and yet we absolutely have no control over it whatsoever. And that was the situation here. God didn't explain it. He didn't come down and tap Job on the shoulder and say, hey, by the way, I bragged on you, so now you're going to be under intense persecution. But that was the truth. So through various accidents, all of a sudden, Job's children started dying, and then he lost his wealth, and then he lost his health. And by chapter 2, his wife says, your integrity's shot. Curse God and die. And then his friends, <laughs> friends showed up, uh, and they, basically their theme for, for multiple chapters in Job is, Job, just fess up. You must have done something wrong to deserve this much punishment. You obviously have gotten God pretty upset with you. Just confess you're guilty. And Job refused because he wasn't. He lamented his losses. He felt hopeless. He felt like giving up. He fell pretty low in his spirit. He took his complaints and his questions to God. He said things like, God, I loathe my life. Or, why have, did you ever bring me out of my mother's womb? In chapter 12, he's saying, God has done this to me. Chapter 13, he says, still, I'm going to hope in God. He's my only hope. And Job stayed humble, and he continued to trust and to hope in God. And God vindicated him and blessed him all the more. You know, when people know that you're a believer, and they are not, they may tease you, they may oppose you, they may make your life difficult, but they also watch you. They watch, how do you deal with people? How do you handle pride? How do you deal with setbacks? How do you deal with loss? How do you respond to life being unfair to you? And Jesus said this to his followers. It's in Luke 17. He said, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, just say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You go, what? Instead of bragging on yourself, instead of being so proud of yourself, instead of saying, wow, look what God did through me, or look what I have done, just to say we are God's unworthy servants. We didn't, we didn't deserve to be chosen by God. We've just done what was our duty, what God told us to do. Jesus is saying, stay humble. Just do the job I ask you to do. Don't be so stuck on yourself. And Peter said it this way, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So to be humble, can't be humble and be obnoxious at the same time. Then number four, deal with important issues. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. All the daily things that we need to be concerned about, God will take care of. I have mentioned him before. I don't know that we have his name on the screen, but a guy named Albert Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R. You could Google him. He has a daily briefing. It's called The Briefing. It's a daily analysis of a Christian worldview. And uh, he, he is the pre, uh, president at the Southern Baptist Seminary. So Monday he cited a story from the New York Times. Basically the, it said the new decision makers in the House of Representatives have established new procedures. When a witness is going to be sworn in to speak, do you know what the new procedures are? It's basically like the old procedures, except they've omitted four words. When you take the oath, so help me God. They've cut that off. Right? And there's no longer any entreaty to the Almighty. There's no longer saying, I'm telling the truth. 
God, hold me accountable, or I'm telling the truth. God, I know you are listening, and you will hold me accountable for every word I say. And the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, subcommittee on the Constitution, on civil rights and civil liberties, his name is Steve Cohen, Representative Steve Cohen from Tennessee, said this, quote, I think God belongs in religious institutions, in temple, in church, in cathedral, in mosque, but not in Congress. And responding to complaints, he went on to say about, so help me God, he said, you're using God, and God doesn't want to be used. Like somehow he was in a spot to speak for God. And so, you know, this removal of so help me God in Congress, what is it about us humans that we think we are in charge? We think we can just push God out of the picture. There's been attempts of that before, leaving people standing all alone as everybody else bows down to some new little God. Daniel was another one of those. Here he was a young man that uh, obviously had a lot going for him. He was uh, in the court in, in Jerusalem as a young person and uh, really on the up and up, and all of a sudden life just changed drastically. Uh, the Babylonians showed up and uh, obliterated Jerusalem and took thousands of people captive. And uh, Daniel goes from being a prince in the court to being captured by the enemy to being taken as a prisoner. But he chose to say, God has not forsaken me, and I'm going to keep living by uh, God's way. And uh, the first test was the menu because they were going to feed them food offered to idols. And he said, no, no, I'm going to stand for God. And he gathered about three of his buddies to help him do that. And then they learned that he could interpret dreams. And so the king had some dreams nobody else could explain. And uh, Daniel was able to explain them. And then he was hated by others uh, out of envy. And they tried to get rid of him. And that's where he ended up in the lion's den as a, as a snack for the lions one night, except God closed their mouths overnight. Do you know, for 70 years, Daniel had a secret of his success and his sustainability. Three times a day, he would be on his knees before God. He would open a window at his house that pointed to his old hometown of Jerusalem, where he always hoped to go. He never got to go back there. 70 years, three times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, he would open the window and he would ask God for God's help, for God's forgiveness, for God's guidance, for God's presence. Daniel remains, even to us, as an example of how to deal with important issues and how to keep the main thing the main thing. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Then the last thing I want to say is know what not to say. Know what not to say. In Ephesians 4, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Sometimes we need to do a little more study on who we're talking to and what we have to say. read a little book this week by a guy named Sam Harris. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's one of the top four or five atheists in our country. And um, this book is entitled Letters, Letter to a Christian Nation. And it was not his first book. His first book was The End of Faith. And so here's how he begins. He says, since the publication of my first book, The End of Faith, thousands of people have written to tell me I'm wrong not to believe in God. The most hostile of these communications has come from Christians. This is ironic as Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously, intolerant of criticism. While we may want to ascribe this to human nature, it is clear that such hatred draws considerable support from the Bible. How do I know this? 
because the most disturbed of my correspondents always cite chapter and verse. Then he begins his letter. He says, you believe that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God, and only those who place their faith in Jesus will find salvation after death. I go, that's pretty good. This guy understands what we're about. He says, as a Christian, you believe these propositions not because they make you feel good, but because you think they are true. Then he goes on, only one of us is right. The Bible is either the word of God or it isn't. So if it is, then let's live by it. If it isn't, let's discard it. He goes on the next page, page six, to say, every devout Muslim has the same reasons for being a Muslim that you have for being a Christian, and yet you do not find their reasons compelling. Well, we know and believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's our authority for our faith and our practice. And we know and believe that Jesus is God. He came into this world in human flesh and he died for our sins to forgive us from our sins and then he rose from the dead. And we know and believe that the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in the heart and life of any person who becomes a believer uh, in Jesus Christ and becomes a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that Holy Spirit leads and guides our lives. But the cynics of this world, and they are increasing, and Sam Harris would be among them, the cynics of this world don't believe any of those truths. And they generally don't read the Bible, or if they do, they don't read it saying, this is an authority for my life. It'd just be a curiosity. And they can't see Jesus or the Holy Spirit, so they seem to be out of the picture. And they, they however, can see you. And they can see me. And they can watch how we live our lives. And they can be asking the question, what difference does all this belief in Jesus make? So how do we be people that live lives that are compelling? Live lives that somebody else says, I want what they're having. To be empathetic, to understand someone else's tensions, but to take our time and to live our life and to enter into conversations in such a way as to earn the right to be heard and then speak. It's a tall order, unashamed, but not obnoxious. So we need the authority of the Scripture. We need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We need the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. And we need to make this a priority to be unashamed and not obnoxious and to speak up. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you for the world that we live in and the pressures that we feel living here and loving you. It pales by comparison to what Francis in India would be, will be facing. And yet we want to be found faithful for what you have called us to be and to do. So I pray that we will take strength from your word. Your spirit will guide our spirits so that we are people who are courageous and bold and joyful and winsome and good listeners and also willing and ready and eager to share the good news of Jesus. So... Continue to work in us and on us, we pray, so that we are unashamed but not obnoxious. Amen.